0: So we're working our way through the book of Ephesians, and today we find ourselves in the end of Ephesians chapter 1. I just want to provide a little bit of a review as we kind of jump into our text this morning, or before we jump into our text. If you remember, the book of Ephesians, or this letter, is a circular letter. It was intended for more than just one church. There's even debate as to whether the original letter actually said to the saints who are at Ephesus, or whether it just simply said to the saints who are faithful that this letter would have been circulated to many churches and that it doesn't address any specific need or any specific false teaching necessarily, but instead it has this broad application. So it's a great letter in the sense that we understand that it applies directly to us. Oftentimes, when you're reading a New Testament letter, a New Testament epistle, you have to understand what was the intent of the original audience, and then how do we then imply it or apply it to our lives. In this case, the application is much more direct and that He's not addressing specific error or specific problems, but instead pointing to our riches in Christ. Hence the sermon series title, Unfathomable, riches, which is taken, by the way, if you're curious, right from Ephesians 3, 8, which says, to me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ, all of the riches that are unsearchable, ununderstandable, the depth of the riches that we have in Christ and what He has done for us in the gospel. So this book can be divided into two halves, the first half kind of underlying the truth of the Gospel. What that is, when I speak of the Gospel, what I'm talking about is I'm talking about the fact that we are sinners, that we have sinned against a holy God, that we have rebelled against a holy God, and that the punishment for sin is death. That's what Scripture teaches. And it's eternal separation from Him in a place called hell. However, there's good. that's the bad news. The good news is that Jesus came into this world fully God, fully man, lived a perfect life, died on the cross for our sins, and was raised on that third day that we might be forgiven. So that's the gospel, and he lays out the gospel message in the first half of Ephesians, and then in the second half of Ephesians says, this then is how you live in light of that truth. That being said, there is application in these first three chapters as well that we will call out of our text this morning. So, if you remember the first few weeks, we worked through the first part of Ephesians 1, and we saw that we can live a life of promise, that God has called us into His kingdom, that He's made us citizens, and that we then can live in light of that truth, that He's rescued us from this world of darkness and called us to a kingdom of His own. And that we can not only live a life of promise, but that we can live a life of purpose. That He's called us to not only be citizens, but also to be ambassadors. That we're called to serve and represent Him in this world. That while He saved us from death, He didn't take us out of this world, but kept us in the world, sent us into the world to represent Him. And then thirdly, we saw that we can live a life of peace. That He's called us to be sons and daughters. He's not only made us ambassadors, but we're sons and daughters. He's given us an inheritance, a beautiful inheritance to look forward to when Christ returns. That all of heaven is ours is what Scripture says. So, this week's text builds on those ideas. So, with that in mind, let's look at our text this morning. If you'll stand with me for the reading of God's Word Ephesians 1, verses 15 through 23. For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you, and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you, while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, so that you will know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and what are the surpassing... What is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of His might, which He brought about in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And He put all things in subjection under His feet and gave Him as head over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading, the hearing, and the applying of his word. Amen. You may be seated. So how many of you have used Uber? Right? So Kim's raised her hand the little, uh, you may be familiar with Uber, you may not be, it's a little, it's an app that you get on your smartphone, and you can, um, it, it automatically figures out where you are using GPS, and you put in an address, and some, some stranger shows up in their car, it's better than a taxi cab, because some stranger shows up in their car, picks you up, and takes you where you want to go, and you get to ride with a stranger, and you pay on your phone through this app, right, there's Uber, there's Lyft, there's others, so While we were on our trip to Fort Lauderdale, we ended up using Uber quite a bit. And I've used Uber and I really like using Uber. I think it's just a fun thing to do because you get to meet a whole bunch of people and you get to ride in their cars and witness to the Uber drivers while you're doing so. So as we interacted with these drivers, it became clear that most of them were willing to talk about spiritual things that as you get into their car, and I don't know if this is wise or not, but nonetheless it's fun to get into a car with somebody you don't know, you have no idea where you are because you're in a foreign place, right? You're in Fort Lauderdale, Florida or wherever. You get into their car and you start asking them about sin and hell and death and all kinds of great things, right? But the thing is, most of the Uber drivers were eager to talk about spiritual things as long as we didn't get too specific, let alone approach topics like sin and salvation and the atoning work of Jesus on the cross. However, a common thread existed as I talked to these Uber drivers and as we had conversation with them, my family and I. A common thread existed. And that I think it was in every conversation what came up was the importance of prayer. In fact, one driver went so far as to say, I believe in the importance of prayer. And then he said, I'm not sure if this was a dig on me or on us as Christians, but he said, I believe in the importance of prayer. I pray every day, except Sunday. I'm not sure why he said except Sunday, but he said, I pray every day, except Sunday. This is also the same Uber driver who said, I believe that everybody should believe in a benevolent creator of the universe. Which, by the way, that's idolatry. It's creating a God to suit your own image. It's creating a God that doesn't exist and making a God that fits what you believe But my point is to say that I believe that most people pray, at least in America especially. Most people pray. Studies show that 55% of Americans pray every day. 76% of Americans pray at least monthly. And 45% say that they rely on prayer a lot. 45% of Americans say they rely on prayer a lot in their daily lives. Interestingly, I heard I read another statistic that said nearly 90% of Americans say they have prayed for healing. That they've prayed that they would either be healed or that others would be healed. So there's a prevalence of prayer even in our culture, which is post-Christian, post anything really. It's often a, a non-religious culture. There's this idea of prayer. So 55% of Americans pray. Every day. However, of those 55% of Americans who pray every day, only half of them, 50%, say they actually rely on religion. That's religion of any sort, not just Christianity, but rely on religion for guidance on the difference between right and wrong. So 55% pray, but only half of those say, yeah, religion actually is what impacts my ability to discern right and wrong. 7% said they rely on philosophy, 35% say they rely on their own common sense. And 5% say they rely on science as their source alone. So all of this data is interesting. It's actually alarming, really. If you think about those numbers, three quarters of Americans consider themselves Christian, yet only half of Americans pray every day. So three quarters say, I'm a Christian, and only half pray daily. And only half of them consider religion the proper source for determining right from wrong or truth from error. Now I want to be careful here because I don't want you to think that as I say this or as I share these statistics that I'm saying that praying makes you a Christian. Nor am I saying that in order to be a Christian, you need to pray every day. Because in some respect, as I think about those statistics, I think, wow, 55% of Americans pray every day. Sometimes I struggle to pray every day. I don't want you to think that you need to pray every day to be a Christian as though by somehow, somehow praying was a means to earn your salvation. What I'm saying is that being a Christian, having experienced the grace of God, and prayer, that is, talking to your Heavenly Father, those two things go hand in hand. That once you experience God's grace, you should want to talk to God. So anyone who considers themselves a Christian and does not regularly pray is at best desperately sick. And at worst, not a Christian at all. Those are harsh words, but I believe they're true words. In other words, because experiencing the grace of God drives us to want to commune with God, not wanting to talk to Him should cause us to question whether we have ever experienced the grace of God in the first place. That if you do not want to talk to God, you should step back and say, have I experienced the grace of God in a very real way in my life? Because experiencing that grace, being forgiven being called a son or a daughter, being given an inheritance, should cause you to want to talk to your Father. That's what Scripture teaches. And that is what is the experience of believers. So that being said, as I mentioned, prayer doesn't always come easy. There are times when I don't want to pray. And in the same respect, by the way, there are times when I don't want to read my Bible. We were talking in small group about how there are some mornings I get up And I I can't really read my Bible until I've prayed, and I can't pray until I've read my Bible. So I pray, and then I read my Bible, and then I pray again, and then I read my Bible. And as I do so, God stirs in me an affection for Him and for His Word. But it's not always natural. I don't always throw the covers off in the morning and jump up and say, Glory be to God! I'm going to spend some time in prayer and in His Word. Instead, I kind of waddle over the coffee maker, pray that, well, I do pray. I pray that Kim made the coffee, right, already in the morning. Pray that my recliner's warm as I sit down. But as I do those things, God stirs in me this affection. So it's my hope that as we consider this text, a text in which Paul prays for those to whom he is writing, that we gain not only some serious understanding about the importance of prayer, but some serious motivation to be people committed to prayer. So without further ado, let's look at our sermon point, our first point in our sermon outline this morning. That is, number one, we should pray with a spirit of thanksgiving. Number one, we should pray with a spirit of thanksgiving. Look at verses 15 and 16 with me. Paul writes this. He says, For this reason, in other words, in light of what I just said, in light of the promises of God, in light of all these things that God has sent His Spirit as a promise that He's going to redeem you, that He's going to come back and claim you as His own, in light of the truth of the Gospel, that He's called you as citizens, He's called you as ambassadors, He's called you as sons and daughters, in light of this, for this reason, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ which exists among you, knowing that you are saved by faith, that you're trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ and Him alone, and your love for the saints, in other words, evidence of that fact, not just that you say you have faith, but there's evidence of the fact that your faith is real because you love your brothers and sisters in the Lord for this reason. In light of these things, he says, I do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. In light of your faith, which is lived out and demonstrated in very real terms by you loving others in light of what Christ has done for you, I can't stop giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. Paul's point is not that he always endlessly prays for the Ephesian believers. His point is not that he walks around going, God, thank you for the Ephesian believers. God, thank you for the Ephesian believers. God, thank you for... And that he never stops. His point is that when he prays for them, he's always thankful for them. You See, he sees their faith as real, as genuine. He knows that the work of God has been manifested in their lives. And when he prays for them, when he says, I need to pray for that church in Ephesus, he says, God, thank you for what you're doing in them. When he prays for them, he's always thankful for them. The context, though, makes it clear that his praying for them is a regular occurrence. The Christian Standard Bible does a good job at making this verse clear. It reads this, it says, I never stop giving thanks for you as I remember you in my prayers. So the implication is I often remember you, and when I do remember you, I am so thankful for you. That when I think of you, I am thankful for you to God that ultimately His thanks are not to the Ephesian believers. It's not, I thank God that you are so great. It's, I thank God for you because God has done a mighty work in you. In other words, Paul is saying that he re- regularly remembers these believers in his prayers. And he's thankful for them. This idea of thankfulness and prayer go hand in hand throughout the Scriptures. When we pray, we're called to be thankful conversely, being thankful drives us to prayer. It's kind of like when I said when I get up in the morning and sometimes I don't want to read my Bible until I've prayed and I don't want to pray until I've read my Bible, that those two things kind of connect and they meet together and one drives the other. In the same way that when we're thankful, it motivates us to pray. And when we pray, it motivates us to be thankful. You see, we set ourselves on a course of Greater thankfulness and greater prayer when we step in and we begin that process. Colossians 4 2 says, Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. Devote yourselves to prayer. In other words, do it. And how do you do it? Well, have an attitude of thanksgiving. Philippians 4, verses 6 through 7. We talked about this in Sunday school. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Don't be anxious, but instead, by prayer and and supplication, asking God, with thanksgiving, being thankful for what God has done, let your request be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Then 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 16-18. through It says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Rejoice, be happy, pray without ceasing, and in everything give thanks. That as you give thanks, you will pray and you will be happy, and as you're happy and you pray, you will give thanks. So there's no way to separate these ideas of prayer and thankfulness that one drives the other. When we pray, we're called to be thankful. And when we're thankful, it drives us to pray. So when we read these verses telling us over and over again to be thankful when we pray, it's important that we don't see them as mere commands. In other words, I don't want you to hear me say, you need to be thankful. So therefore, when you pray, thank God. That it's not just a mere command. In other words, it's important to see Thankfulness and prayer, not so much as a duty, but as a possibility. That as you pray to God, a spirit of thankfulness will bubble up inside of you as you think about what God has done. See, what the Scripture teaches is that thankfulness, again, leads to prayer, and prayer leads to thankfulness. So as you reflect on the grace of God in both your life and in the life of others, it causes you to be Thankful. As you think about what God has done for you and what He's done for those around you, it causes you to give Him thanks. That's exactly what Paul is doing here. He's remembering the grace of God and the lives of these dear saints. He's remembering the power of the gospel to transform their lives and make them citizens of heaven. And that causes him to lift up his voice in thankfulness to God. So having seen, number one, that we should pray with the spirit of thanksgiving, now let's consider number two, we should pray with a spirit of boldness. Number two, we should pray with a spirit of boldness. Look at verse 17. He says, I, I, He continues and says, I pray, and I'm praying, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. In other words, he says, when I pray, I remember you frequently, I'm thankful for you, and when I pray, here's what I pray. I pray that God will give you a spirit of wisdom, that He'll open up your spirit, that your spirit will be wise, and you'll have a knowledge of God. So when I speak of boldness, when I say we're called to pray with a spirit of boldness, I do not merely mean asking for health, wealth, and prosperity. These kinds of things, frankly, are easy to pray for. It's very easy to pray, Lord, give me a new job. Lord, give me healing. 90% of Americans have prayed for healing. And there's a concern that when I I talk about praying bold prayers or praying with boldness, that someone, someone will understand this as the prosperity gospel. That what I'm saying is that you should ask God for these big, massive things that really are your wants and your concerns, your desires, and not God's. So don't hear me say that I'm not saying we shouldn't pray that God would bless us, or that we shouldn't pray for healing, or that we shouldn't pray for financial prosperity so that we can use it for God's glory. Those are all good things to pray for. We should pray that God would bless us. But what I'm saying is that far too often we pray for less than we should. That our prayers are not as bold as they should be. And even when I say bold, I'm afraid that you're not thinking as big as you should See, C.S. Lewis said it appropriately. C.S. Lewis said this He said, If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. He says, If we understand what God has promised for us in the Gospels, then we would understand that our desires are not too strong, they're too weak. We ask for too little. We're half-hearted creatures, She goes on, we're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We're like the ignorant child who's happy to make mud pies in the slums Because we have no idea what has really been offered to us. You see, he says we are far too easily pleased. When we pray, our prayers should be bold. But by that boldness, I do not mean that we should pray for a new Maserati. Right? When we were in Fort Lauderdale, Fort Lauderdale is like the capital of amazing cars. So I'm walking around like this, like the whole time. Like Kim's like, "There's another one. There's another one." I'm just there. Maseratis are everywhere. I don't know how much money there is in Fort Lauderdale. Interestingly enough, one of the Uber drivers said, man, you should see Miami. This place is the slums compared to Miami. I, thought, I can't imagine what kind of cars there are in Miami, right? But the point is not that we should pray for a Maserati instead of a Volkswagen Jetta. The point is that God has promised us so much more than a new Maserati. So when I speak of boldness and prayer... What I'm talking about is that we should pray that we have a deeper knowledge of God. That's what Paul is talking about here. Don't just pray for these earthly things. Pray that you would know God better. That, my friends, is bold. That we, sinful, finite beings who are created by God would ask the sovereign God of the universe, the creator of all things, the sustainer of all things, the father of glory, as Paul calls him, that we would ask to know him personally. You know, I am a nobody in the midst of nobodies through human history. When you compare, there's just we're just, a, we're just a blip in time among millions and billions of people that have ever lived and will ever live. And for us, as a created being, finite, sinful, to come to God and say, God, I want to know you more, that is bold. And that's the kind of bold prayer we should ask for. Far bolder and far better than asking for the mud pies that we too often settle for. So to be clear, Paul is writing to believers, and he's He's not praying for a mere intellectual knowledge of God. So he says that you may know God. He's not just saying, I want you to know about God. I want you to be like those seminary professors. No offense to Dan. Dan's not one of these seminary professors. One of those seminary professors who works in a liberal seminary who has knowledge about God, but no knowledge of God. That's not his point. He's not talking about intellectual knowledge of God. He's talking about a deep relationship with God not merely knowing about God but knowing God. And he's speaking to people who already have a saving knowledge of God. They already know who God is. They know what God has done. But he's praying that they would his readers would have an increasing, growing, ever deepening knowledge of who God is. In other words, he's not praying that you would know God like you know the kid who bags your groceries at the grocery store. Although even as I wrote that I thought They don't really do that much anymore, right? That instead you have to like go through the checkout yourself now and bag your own groceries. But anyway, the the point is that he's not saying that you know them like you know your neighbor. He's saying that you would know God like you know your husband or your wife. I remember when we were first married, Kim used to say, in fact, she still says this sometimes, I just want to know you more. And I would think, what does that mean? You know me like you've known me for a long time. How could you know? As you grow in a relationship, you begin to understand what that means. To grow, to deepen your relationship with somebody means to know them more. And that's what Paul is praying for the Ephesian believers here. He's saying, I pray that you would know God more. That you would have a deep, intimate, personal knowledge of who God is. It's the same prayer that the psalmist asked for in Psalm 63.1. So God, You are my God, I shall seek You earnestly. My soul thirsts for You, my flesh yearns for You. In a dry and weary land where there is no water, I want to know You, God. It's the same Psalm 42, verse we're all familiar with, verses 1 and 2. As a deer pants for the water, so my soul pants for You, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? In other words, I want to know you more. The Psalms are full of those kinds of references. And Paul says to the believers to whom he's writing, I want you to know God more. And the beauty of this not being written to one church, it's not that there was one church that they didn't really know God well enough. is that he's saying this to all of us. I want you to know God more. Regardless of whether you're in Ephesus or Colossae or Corinth or wherever or South Thomaston. My prayer is that you would know God more. He goes on in verse 18 to say this. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. It's interesting. He doesn't say the eyes of your mind. We think of the eyes as connecting to our brain. He doesn't say, I want you to have more evidence of God. Instead, he says, I want you to see, to understand To love God with your entire being. The heart is the place of entire being. I want your eyes to be completely open to who God is. So that, he says, you will know what is the hope of His calling. What are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints. And what is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe. So he says this threefold thing. He says, I pray that your eyes may be open, the eyes of your heart. So that you'll know the hope of His calling. So that you'll have hope stemming from what He has done. So that you'll understand the riches of His inheritance. So that you'll understand the riches of what He's promised to you in Christ. And he says, And so that you'll understand the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe. The power to live godly lives here and now. In other words, he says, I want you to remember what God has done, what God's going to do, and what God is doing I want you to walk intimately with God. Paul is saying, I pray that your heart may be open to understand what God has done for you in Christ. I pray that you understand what it means to be a citizen, an ambassador, and a child. I pray that you see and understand that the love of God and the unfathomable riches in Christ that He has bestowed on you in Christ, that's bold prayer, folks. And we settle for, Lord, fix my paper cut, or Lord, I need a new job, or Lord, wouldn't it be great to have this car that's going to rust and rot when we're offered something far greater? We continue to pray and ask for mud pies in the slums when we're offered a holiday at the sea. So having seen that we should pray with a spirit of thanksgiving, that God's promised us to be part of His kingdom. He's made us part of His kingdom. He's given us a life of promise. That we should pray with a spirit of boldness. That He's given us a life of purpose. That we're called to be ambassadors, to represent Him in this world, to know Him, and to represent Him to a watching world. Now let's consider thirdly, that we should pray with a spirit of confidence. Number three, we should pray with a spirit of confidence. Look at verses 19-23. through He continues in verse 19 and says this. He says, These... in in other words, understanding the hope of His calling, understanding the riches of His inheritance, understanding the surpassing greatness of His power, these things that I just mentioned are in accordance. I'm praying these things for you, and these things that I'm praying for you are in accordance with the working of the strength of His might which He brought about in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at the right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule, all authority, all power, all dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. He wants you to see the totality of Christ's rule. And He put all things in subjection under His feet. And He gave Him as head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. He says Christ is in control. He's seated over all things. And you are Christ's body, the fullness of Him. In this world. See, Paul's point here is that we can pray with that kind of boldness. God, I want to know You. God, I want to be known by You. And I want to know You. And I want to grow in You. And we can pray with that kind of boldness. Because we can grow in our knowledge of God. Because such prayer, he says, is in accordance with the working of the strength of His might. In other words, we can pray that way because that is the will of God. And He has the power to see it through. He says all of that, that kind of prayer is in accordance with His will and He will see that it is accomplished. That's the kind of prayer I want to pray. I want to pray the kind of prayer that I know God has already promised He will answer. That I'm claiming the promises of God. If that's not the kind of prayer life we want to have, the prayer where we come to God and we remind God of His promises and we claim those promises, then what are we asking for? He says we can pray that because that's the will of God. He has the power to see it through. Power that was made evident when He raised Jesus from the dead. How do we know that God has that kind of power? It's evidenced by the fact that He raised Jesus from the dead. 1 John 5.14 says, This is the confidence that we have before Him. That if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. So when we pray in accordance with God's will, God, grow me, I want to know you, He hears us. John 15, 7, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it shall be done for you. That when we pray according to His will, these aren't just empty promises. He says, I'll meet these needs, I'll make them happen. They're not empty promises because he's demonstrated his power and love for the church in giving his son. That's the message of Romans 8. Romans 8, Paul's writing and he says, We've been given the first fruits of the Spirit. Kind of a picture of what he also says in Ephesians. That God gave us a spirit and yet we groan within ourselves waiting eagerly for what's coming next. We groan, waiting for Christ to come back, because we want our final redemption, the adoption as sons. We want to be claimed by Christ. We want to be out of this world. We want to spend eternity with Him in heaven. And He says, and in the same way, the Spirit, in Romans eight twenty six, He says, the Spirit helps our weakness, so that we we do not know how to pray as we should. But the Spirit intercedes for us; the Holy Spirit's given to us, and when we pray, we don't even know how we should pray sometimes. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, and He who searches the heart knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because He intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that, and He goes on and says, we know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. And he says, and. God's going to make you like Jesus. And He's going to to grow you. He's going to mold you. He's going to make you. He's going to rescue you. And what shall we say then if these things are true? Who's against us? No one. Because God, no one ultimately, because God who did not spare His own Son but delivered Him over for us all, how will He not also freely give us all good things? In other words, He says, God will make sure that His promises are realized. And how do you know that? Because He gave you His Son, Jesus. That He sent His Son to die on the cross. So all of these promises, says Paul, by the Spirit of God, are true. And that's his point in Ephesians 1. He says, He brought about these things in Christ when He raised Him from the dead. These promises are as good as done because He raised Jesus from the dead so you can trust Him. You can pray with confidence that God will bring them to pass. So when we pray that God would grow us, that He would cause us to know Him better and to walk in close communion with Him, we can pray that prayer with confidence because that's God's will for us. And He has the power to see it accomplished. So by way of review, We should pray with a spirit of thanksgiving. We can live a life of promise because He's given us, He's made us citizens of a king of a kingdom that exists without walls. He's made us citizens of the kingdom of heaven, and we should be thankful for that. So we should pray with a spirit of thanksgiving, seeing what God has done. We should pray with a spirit of boldness. That God has not only called us to to rescue us, but he's also sent us into this world as ambassadors. He's sent us into this world with purpose. And that we can live for Him, for His glory, and we can know Him better. We should pray that we would know Him better and represent Him better in this world. And then we should pray with a spirit of confidence. He's given us peace, knowing that we are sons and daughters. We're not only citizens and ambassadors, but we're also sons and daughters. He sent His Son to die on the cross for us. So clearly, surely, His promises are true. Because if He didn't withhold Him, He's not going to withhold anything good. Instead, He will bless us richly as we pray in accordance with His will. God, grow me. God, mold me. God, make me into the person You want me to be. Help me to know You better and to walk in close communion with You. So here's the question, the big question of the day. So how do we, as Harmony Bible Church, both individually and corporately, specifically apply all this to our lives? How do we take this text... And how do we apply it? Well, it's pretty simple. We should pray with a spirit of thanksgiving. We should pray with a spirit of boldness. And we should pray with a spirit of confidence, right? But as we pray with a spirit of thanksgiving, I want you to think about how we do that. We do that by remembering the gospel. We pray with a spirit of thanksgiving by remembering the truth of God's word and what he has done for us in Christ. We do that also by sharing testimonies. Testimonies are an important part of the Christian life. That if you come to church on Sunday morning and you listen to a sermon, you sing a few songs, and you don't interact with other believers, you're missing something. Yeah, I shared a testimony today. And that's awesome that we get to share testimonies. But I want you to interact with each other. We need to be part of the body of Christ that so we're seeing and hearing and understanding how God is working in each other's lives. As I look out in this room, there are so many miraculous praises. God is doing some awesome things in your lives. And I'm blown away by it. And I want you all to be blown away by it. Because as you share what God is doing, it creates a spirit of thanksgiving. I want you to be thankful so that you're motivated to pray. Because as you see what God has done, it motivates you to pray. And as you pray... It motivates you to be more thankful. And it sets you on a collision course of more thankfulness, more prayer, more thankfulness, more prayer. And then you become one of those people that's just praying and happy, thankful all the time. What a blessing that is to those around you, right? So we pray with a spirit of thanksgiving by doing those things. We pray with a spirit of boldness by being focused on growing in our knowledge of Him. You know, some would say that this kind of stuff doesn't really matter and maybe you shouldn't bring that up. It does matter. It matters deeply what this book says. And there may be minor differences, but ultimately when it comes down to knowing Him and knowing Him well and walking with Him, we need to know the truth and we need to be focused on a knowledge of Him. But it can't just be head knowledge. It needs to be a deep love for Him. So we should pray that for each other. We should pray that for ourselves for sure, but we should pray that for each other. How many of you pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ? And then we need to be open and honest with God and with each other about our real needs. You know, it's easy to come to prayer meeting and say, you know, I got this problem with my eyes, or, you know, oh, my leg's bothering me, or my back, or, right, my car broke down. But when we're open and honest about our real needs, not just comfort and health, but instead, I need to know Him better. I need to get in His Word. I need to love Him more. And I'm struggling in this. Will you pray with me? Will you pray for me? That when we do those things, and then we pray with a spirit of boldness, Lord, grow me. Lord, mold me and make me. I want to know You more that God honors that prayer. Because it's in accordance with His will and it is according to His power that He has made sure that it will indeed happen as we pray that. So then we pray not only with the spirit of thanksgiving, not only with a spirit of boldness, but how do we pray with a spirit of confidence? Well, we remember our inheritance. We do this. We gather. We remember the Gospel. We remember His promises. And we share His promises with each other. This is part of living as a body. We remind each other of God's promises. I know you're struggling, brother, but this, this time, it'll be over soon. I know it's hard to see. I know that it's hard to understand how God's going to use us for good, but I I believe it. I believe it because it's right here. It's on this page. Look at it with me. Understand it. And I'm going to hold you up in prayer. And as I pray, I'm going to pray with confidence because I know God will bring it to pass. Because His Word is true. His promises are true. And we know that because of what He has done for us through His Son, Jesus Christ. So when we pray with a spirit of thanksgiving, a spirit of boldness, and a spirit of confidence, these can't just be words on a page. They must be the way we live. Prayer is not something we we do on Wednesday night. It needs to be something that's part of the fabric of our church, part of who we are as people. It begins with thankfulness to God, and it continues with deeper prayer, which drives us to be more thankful. Praise Him for His Word this morning. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You so much for Your grace. God, we thank You for what You have done for us. That You have sent Your Son, Jesus, into the world to die on the cross for our sins. God, I pray that there is no one here that would leave here without knowing You, without having a saving knowledge of You, without having trusted in Your Son, Jesus Christ, as their Lord and as their Savior. God, I thank You for what You will do for those who are separated, who are called out, those who You have made citizens. God, that You will give us an inheritance future inheritance and a hope that we can live in this life waiting for but God I also praise you that you haven't called us out of this world but sent us into this world to represent you to know you to walk with you daily in the trials of this life God may we know you more may we lean on you more may we be ambassadors for you to point others to a saving knowledge of you as well God I thank you for just your grace and your mercy in our lives and i pray that as we come before you daily that we would do so with a spirit of thanksgiving that we would remember the gospel god i pray that we would pray with a spirit of boldness that we would pray for each other that we would pray not just for not just for physical needs or health or comfort but for ultimately our spiritual needs god that we would grow in you God, I pray that we would be bold as we are open and honest with You and with others about our needs. And God, I pray that You'd give us a spirit of confidence as we pray. Help us to remember our inheritance. Help us to remember Your promises. May we look to Your Word. May we write down Your promises. Remember Your promises. Share Your promises with each other. And spur one another on toward love and good deeds as we await the return of Your Son, Jesus. God, we pray all these things in His name. Amen. Amen.